John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 772.PR2516, certificate number 31531, the megavitamin craze. The increased synthesis of collagen might strengthen normal tissues to a significant extent. Since then, uh, a large amount of information has been gathered about the relation between intake of vitamin C and various aspects of the immune protective mechanisms. Do you take vitamins? I'm not, I'm historically terrible at it. Like as a kid, I would take a chewable Flintstone vitamin. <laughs> Is it a thing you can be good at? <laughs> Is it like a skill? It requires remembering to do something once a day. Oh, I see. Which, you know, in some parts of my life, I'm strong at. Uh, remembering to shower once a day. You shower once a day? I do. Oh, you're very... Yeah, I mean, you do register not, as a very clean person. Is that not the normal person. amount? I'm a very clean man. You're a clean man. A clean old man. Uh, I think that showering once a day is a cultural thing that not everyone ascribes to. I'm not gonna, I'm not saying people who don't are, are dirty, but what would you say is the average in the U S point nine showers a day? I think it changes. I think it's, I think it is a thing that goes in and out. Like in high school, I remember showering once a day being the minimum. That's because you were smellier. High school boys are stinky. It's true. But then there was a, in the 90s, I guess predictably, in the 90s, there was pushback on that, uh, that that your hair actually wanted some oil. I actually did stop shampooing every day when I, when I heard this. Yeah. And, there and to was, this day, I'm kind of a not everyday shampooer. Is that correct? Am I think I, so. Am I doing this right? I think that's right. And I think that your natural oils are like the oils on a farm egg, a farm fresh egg. If you wash them off, then the egg... Spoils faster. Do you mean mine in particular, or do you mean everybody's? I think everybody's. Oh, okay. You know, my brother has chickens, and he brought me a, uh, a a dozen eggs that had been that were unwashed, and he said, "You know, these will last on the countertop for two months or they, something because they slide out of the chicken with nature's own nature's goop. own pre- nature's own preservative." And yesterday, I was making the last three eggs, and I cracked a, an egg on the on the uh, bowl, and then. I turned the egg over after, or the shell over, and there was a feather stuck to it. And I was like, this, you either stuck this here with glue to prove a point, or these eggs are truly filthy. It's, uh, 
Well, so, you know, that's one thing I'm good at remembering to do once a day. Yeah. Uh, say what else? Say you brush to, your teeth. Give my wife a kiss on the cheek. Yeah. Eat, uh, eat your lunch and dinner. Watch a movie. But I'm not great at remembering to floss once a day. Sure, that's that, hard. That kind of becomes more of a, oh, it's been a day or two or three. Yeah. And I would say that taking a multivitamin, I have not been good at. But this year has been such a dreary Seattle winter, even by the the gloomy standards of our part of the country, John. Yeah. Have you seen the numbers? Like the U- UW does solar radiation measurements, and this is the darkest winter since they started keeping records. Really? I did not know that because I have spent some dark winters in Seattle, but a lot of those are self-imposed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they can't, they can't, there's no score that they can attach to the psychological darkness of the winter. It's not, but, it's not but, the Dostoevsky scale. But, but we're getting less sun this year than in, than in recorded memory. Just cloud cover, all the, all those oh. rain systems that keep coming up from the, the more tropical parts of the Pacific. It's so, been a rainy winter. Oh, it has with all of the atmospheric rivers. Woof. You know, I like a good river, but yeah. like, Keep them out of the atmosphere, in my opinion. <laughs> Keep them on the ground, between I, banks. You know what? I think that's an uncontroversial take. Thank you. Uh, so are you taking vitamin D or some kind of sunshine medicine? I'm taking vitamin D. I mean, sunshine medicine is maybe what mommy calls her little drinky drinky. Right. And I'm not, I'm not for religious reasons, I can't take any of that. Sure. Uh, but you're taking D. Because my doctor also recommended for people in the Northwest little vitamin D. And you should be doing that anyway. Like even in the sunniest possible winter here, I think at noon, the sun is at an angle where your skin just doesn't care. Yeah. Like you get like eight minutes of sunshine at a high enough angle. Well, maybe if you don't shower every day, maybe your That's skin right. is more receptive to vitamin D. Keep it, well, no, I need to get rid of all that goop so that the, oh. the D sinks in. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, I think Give me you the get, D. <laughs> I, I yell to the sun. <laughs> D's vitamins. <laughs> so, uh, no, I think it's the opposite. I think that the goop, the, the, the goop that builds up on you actually is a refracting it's like, agent. It's like a magnifying glass killing an ant. <laughs> it's just beaming D into my pores. Sometimes at this time of year, I'll be driving and the sun at midday will be up just high enough to be right in my eyes and not you can't you can't put your your visors down in any combination that will block it and i'm just like this is inhumane like we should it's it's why we're all ingmar bergman level Mm -hmm. misanthropes and Mm -hmm. uh depressives right we are we're living on a little sad scandinavian island so as your own parts of the country burn or flood or freeze or or all three, in fact, as you as as our show is beamed around the world, <laughs> the only people that are listening that are like, well, we've got it made are the people in New Zealand, where all the American billionaires are moving. It is kind of the the Puget Sound of the Southern Hemisphere, I yeah. think. They, uh, uh, but you take no other medications, right? You don't have any because you're in perfect health and have twenty ten vision. You don't take any oh, yeah. I'm medicine. Ro- I'm Robocop, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't have a daily thing of pills with the with the initials of the days of the week yet. Yeah, yeah. Sh- sure, it's sure it's coming. As a kid, I always took a Flintstones multivitamin. Sure, and I liked that that weird you have a do. that weird chalky sorbitol taste. That's nice stuff. It's good, right? Yeah. Like to this day, I'll eat a candy that kind of tastes like that, and I'll be like this. How, how is an artificial sweetener this good? This is so good. Like bottle caps? Where do you, where do you find a candy? <laughs> the backs of stamps. <laughs> no, like uh, I take a, I take a chewable. You know, here's a th- thing I sometimes take. I'll take a little chewable metatonin, melatonin. 
Oh, before, to go to sleep? Before bed. Like if I'm trying to go to bed earlier than I want, than my body thinks I should, probably because I stayed up too late the night before or something. Well, I was doing a little research into melatonin and it actually applies to this uh, episode. Apparently melatonin is a stronger medicine than we give it credit for and you should not take it all the time. Like it isn't a thing that you should take every night for a year. You're supposed to take it uh, and if it works, you know, take it for a period and then get off of it. That's what they told us when our, our kid had insomnia. And I had not considered that. But I take a small dosage and because I don't take it very often, it really seems to work. Like oh, really? I, I can cure jet lag with it. If I fly to Europe, I just stay up all day, pop a melatonin at 9 p.m. and I will fall asleep right away and not even wake up in the middle of the night. No kidding. It's magic. You know, the only time I ever tried it, I was also... I didn't find it effective, but I think I was also doing cocaine. So it was like not helping. It wasn't enough. Yeah. You put it in the meth to get that great (laughs) blue Breaking Bad color. Anyway, the ones I've taken are chewable and they taste just like a bear aspirin in, um, in, you know, 1976, but like the sweet side of the aspirin, not the the white side that actually had the medicine. Right. The pink side that had the sorbitol or whatever. And I'm just like, this is so good. Like this is better than a sweet tart. How do you feel about children's uh, grape-flavored Robitussin? <laughs> I kind of like that, too. I like it, too. I kind of like it. Reminds me of my youth. I'm well, going to use that to make some kind of amazing purple meth. Yeah, actually. that's right. Purple meth. But, um, but you know, the thing about Flintstones vitamins is they're, they were problematic for many years because they would have uh, Dino. They would have the car, but yeah. they would not have Betty Rubble. Oh, Betty, there was the only, best of all of them. There was only one woman in the whole jar. They, it was Wilma. They Vilma. Picked, they picked machines over, yeah. over Betty Rubble. I think, they've, <sighs> I think they've recently, you know, I'm a father of, of, of daughters, and I'm a husband of a woman and a son of a mother. Sure. I, I'm, I'm, great, I'm a great ally to all these causes. <laughs> I know you are. You're a super ally to mothers. <laughs> <laughs> love them all. Love all the moms. Not yours, though, I no, no, no. Is, I'm, like, I'm not, setting, I'm not setting up a joke here. No, no, no. That's right. You don't love my mom, but you love my mom. I love your mom. But uh, I think Flintstone vitamins now are um, are feminist approved and have oh, good. have Wilma and Betty. Good. You know, uh, Betty Rubble was the proto Jane Weedland for me. She may have been the first the first uh, woman with short dark hair that I ever fell in love with. That explains my Wilma. I think she must have been my Belinda Carlisle. She was your Belinda Carlisle. Except I no, I preferred Betty. Also, that's a lie. That's yeah. revisionist history. We've we've established that you're a Belinda and I'm a Jane. You're a Jane. Yeah. I started taking medicine a few years ago, as we've probably discussed. You know, like grown up medicine, like old man medicine, creaky and, creaky man medicine, creaky man medicine. And then I had to get a little pill box, and uh, of course that set me on a on a. Uh, a course to try and find a cool vintage uh, pillbox with little glass doors. Yeah, I love your third rack pillbox. It's so good. <laughs> and uh, and so once I because I'd have the same problem that you did. I never took a vitamin or any kind of supplement because, like anything, I could do it for three days, but on the fourth day I would forget about it, and and then it would never happen again. Every time I try to wear a watch, I put it on. I'm like, oh, I should wear watches. Like that's a kind of jewelry, and I wear it for three days, and then I take it off to to take a bath and I never put it back on again. Um, but now that I was taking medicine that I, that I needed, I had this pill box. And so I said, well, now why not put some, 
other things in that pillbox. If I'm taking it every day, why not also take uh, some of these <laughs> quack medicines that are popular among San Francisco billionaires who think they're going to live forever? Oh, really? You're just putting weird uh, concentrated kale pills? Well, there? no. When I when I was dating my uh, San Francisco uh, tech girlfriend a few years ago, she had fallen into taking this medicine called Elysium, which is NAD+. Plus. This sounds like it's from a science fiction movie and it's going to- 100%. It sends you to the Matrix or something. It's one of these, uh, the, they advertised it because they had like nine or maybe 19 Nobel laureates who all were like, this is the greatest medicine in the world. You know, we've all been working apparently in some treehouse on this stuff and it'll make you live forever. And then it turns out that- that 11 of those Nobel laureates were just cornered on a bus somewhere by somebody that was like, I'll give you a million dollars if you, if you put your name on this. How many of them were economics? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I know how much you hate the, the so-called Nobel Prize for economics. Well, the Nobel Prize will figure into our episode today, too. It will. But I started to, uh, I started to take this uh, medicine, and then I was like, well, why not take this other medicine, and then I'll take a multivitamin, and I'll take a this, and I'll put in extra D for myself. Uh, and now I take a huge handful of pills. It's random. It's a giant set of pills. You go to the bulk bin at the supermarket. No, but in college, I did have a friend whose father was a pharmacist and he worked in the summers doing inventory for his father and any pill that had a, uh, you know, like a mind altering or, or, you know, otherwise like downers, uppers, whatever he could find, he would always kind of scoop a handful into this giant pickle jar that he had. And then, and then he, so he would bring it to college and on some weekends he would shake up this pickle jar and we would reach in blindly and take any three. And most of the time, you know, it was this crazy, like, wow, one of them was a muscle relaxant and one of them was, a, was speed and one of them was a downer. And you'd have this kind of John Belushi night, but every once in a while you'd get three, three in a row, like a slot machine. You'd get, well, you'd get like ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. three downers and then you were really in trouble. It was bad a couple of times for me. Bad. I don't want to be Random controversial drugs. here, John, but I'm not sure that guy should have been working in a pharmacy. <laughs> well, he was the son of the, he might even be the pharmacist now for all we know, but it was the... God, it was the 80s, Ken. There were, things were a lot different. It was very punk rock. Uh, yeah, I guess it depends on where you were in the 80s. So I guess that's you right. You could be super coked up if you were Yeah, you, you were had a different a job camp and probably not taking three random pills out of a pickle jar. No, I wouldn't do anything randomly. No, that's right. Even now. That's, that's the devil's work. That's like a tarot <laughs> sure, reading. Sure, chaos <laughs> belongs to the devil. Well, I, don't, I don't even like add salt to taste. I'm like, listen... <laughs> Buddy, how many tablespoons do you? My wife put in enough salt when she was making it. It doesn't need extra. This salt. actually will happen at our house, where like you know, if Mindy's making dinner, she'll serve something, and you know, often it'll be in discrete parts because we have at least one picky eater, usually sometimes two. Sure, I've had several of if those my, meals at your if house. My oldest son is there. <laughs> can't the salad can't have cheese because of my oldest. The salad can't have bacon bits because I'm you know. So it's all assemble it yourself, and I'll just be like, okay, does this go on the bed of rice or is the rice a side? Does the cilantro go on the vegetable or is that for the you know meat and you know and she's always like well just do whatever you want oh no and i'm like no 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 no. give me some order babe i need need to be told what to do with the cilantro i need like a dom sub relationship (laughs) with the cilantro like do not leave me like trying to figure this out myself 
Well, in doing research for this show, I learned something about multivitamins that I was not prepared for because I just taken you know an off the shelf multivitamin that has all of your USDA recommended. Sure, uh, it seems easy. There's shim, a formula, shim, glim glam. But when I was growing up in the 1970s, my dad, uh, who was a sensible man. Uh, became enamored with the idea, the very, very popular idea that mega doses of vitamin C, you know, like way, way over the recommended daily allowance, 3,000 milligrams, or three grams as we say, um, was a cure for the common cold. And it was a, it was a shorthand, vitamin C is a cure for the common cold, of a kind of uh, I guess what I what I think of now is a proto alternative medicine uh, kind of popularity in the United States. That if you were if you were hip enough to the new way, that you were prepared to take a you know that you had even heard of, let alone yeah. were prepared to take a vitamin that was off label. Can you can your brain take this much? vitamin pill. Well, and, and that, and that although scientists were pretty clear that there was no real evidence for vitamin C. Your dad was aware of this part? There was also, this was the very beginning of the, well, there's no evidence that it isn't. Hmm. And, and, you know, scientists are divided on the question when we, in fact, scientists weren't really divided on the question, but there was one scientist in particular who was, a, a, like a popular hero on the level of Einstein, uh, a scientist by the name of Linus Pauling, who yeah. was a, a mid century superstar in, uh, well in America in particular, but globally a, uh, a superstar chemist who had made advances in chemistry that that even still um even still he's regarded as i mean his his papers and his books are still cited in uh in scientific papers to this day i mean even just taking high school chemistry you know learning how molecular orbitals worked you know uh atomic structure uh, sorry, atomic orbitals. Like you would still see, you would see his name, right? He, he was. I, I mean, he he, he wrote he was, the textbook uh, of general chemistry, and a uh, a book that's. I mean, uh, astonishingly, right? Because because book a book uh, of of physics written in 1940 would. I mean, there are so many advances that have happened in physics that you wouldn't. You wouldn't necessarily think of that book as a. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't. You wouldn't still teach it, right? You wouldn't teach Einstein's theory without a lot of asterisks now. But Linus Pauling holds uh, up. Holds up. You listen to that first record. It holds <laughs> up. He's talking the, about uh, ionic and covalent bonds, and you're right. like, "Damn, this is the stuff." Well, and his book, "The Nature of the Chemical Bond," is is the book that that still, you know, still is a, a standard textbook. And what he discovered, I mean, he was kind of the uh the progenitor of quantum chemistry. 
Mm. He, um, up until that point, the, the question of ionic or covalent bonds, uh, was seen as a sort of a binary, a binary choice. And he discovered that, well, ionic and covalent bonds kind of operate in a quantum state. It's a spectrum, man. Like you see the right good looking molecule and you'll be like, well, I thought I was mostly covalent. Maybe maybe I'm a little bit, I feel ionic ionic after these quaaludes. So he won the Nobel prize in chemistry in 1954 when he was uh, still in his fifties and was, uh, and became like a, like a public figure. Um, and it was, he was, he had been invited by Oppenheimer. He was a Caltech guy, actually born in Oregon. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, Portland. He, he'd been invited to be part of the Manhattan Project and had declined initially because he just didn't want to travel to Los Alamos. But he, and, and a lot of this was in a relationship with his wife who was a, who you know, played a large role in his activism. Um, after the war, he became very active in uh, anti-nuclear, uh, initially like science like and then protests. Disarmament, like he's a disarmament guy. Disarmament guy. And, and part of that wave of scientists that came out and said, wait, this is immoral. Um, as science people, we recognize this is, you know, a no win situation. He was, he was part of the, um, uh, part of the, the sort of experimental science crew that determined that fallout was actually kind of pervasive. It, it, it entered into the food chain, cows ate the grass and their milk became radioactive. There was a study called the baby tooth survey where they, uh, they went and asked children to, send in their baby teeth when they fell out and they would get, you know, a food stamp or whatever in return or a gold star. Linus Pauling is the tooth fairy. He's not, he, he, he was part of this study. He was he didn't, he didn't initiate it, I see. but they could, you know, they started to do it in, in the early enough in the fifties that their initial sample of baby teeth was from kids that had not been exposed to that much radiation and they continued to do the baby tooth survey all the way into the sixties and they could see this incredible increase in the amount of isotopes adding up. Yeah. Just strontium or whatever that are in baby teeth, such that kids that were born in the sixties, like me or you, I'm half strontium seventies. Yeah. Right. I mean, we were just, that's uh, why I don't take a vitamin. I'm like, my skeleton's entirely strontium at this point. Right. Absolutely irritated. And so he became an, a, uh, a, uh, also a peace activist and used his leveraged his celebrity as a scientist um, and Nobel prize winner to be part of the disarmament and part of, and, and ultimately like anti-war. That was a kind of general. global celebrity then. Yeah. Like some of them, you know, Sakharov types that writers, poets, scientists, uh, this seemed very urgent at the time and rightly so. Yeah. And, and, and so much so that, he was awarded a second Nobel Prize, this time the Nobel Peace Prize. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962, which, of course, was the absolute height of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know. Um, yeah, the, the Peace Prize is often timely, yeah. right? Like, this is the issue that's 
getting headlines. Here's somebody who's on the right side of the issue. Yeah. Oh, like for instance, Obama's peace prize. <laughs> for example, that one was... right away kind of seemed like, Hmm, interesting. Not really a thing. What, what, what did he do? Did he create like a, did he, is there like a new stamp with like the Mercury astronauts on it? What has he done yet? He's kind of just, you know, he's just there. He's, he's a, he's a handsome guy, but he won the peace prize and, and, in winning it, he became the only person that's won two. Oh, I'm sorry, only one of two. Marie Curie, also the other, who won two uh, unshared piece, uh, unshared Nobel prizes. And wait a minute, I think Marie Curie's first prize was shared with her husband. Shared with her husband. So he's the only Nobel Prize winner who's won two unshared prizes. But Curie won in um, Curie won in two different like. Like Pauling, one in two different two different categories. categories, right? And they're both like real categories, not just like economics, the, the flaky piece of economics. <laughs> ones. <laughs> no, we love the Nobel Peace Prize. There are four. There are two other scientists who have won uh, multiple Nobel prizes, and and in their cases, in the in the same field. Yeah, John Bardeen, the transistor guy. Oh yeah, he won again for superconductivity stuff. That's right. That's right. And then Sanger, once for the... Sanger is the insulin guy, is that right? Insulin guy. One for... Although Canadians have some other guy that they prefer, right? Canadians are all like, we have Frederick Banting, he's our insulin guy. Well, and this is a... You no, know, this is 30 years later, Sanger sequences the amino acids. Okay, sorry, Canada. There's even a case to be made that, um, that Pauling was probably due nominations for or or nobel prizes in in half a dozen other directions in science he was a true polymath he actually got really close to um identifying the nature of dna mm. and, and did a lot of the work toward it but didn't you know in the end he didn't have the he didn't put the pieces together um, he was out, he had like his, his, his wife, his wife wanted him to go out to a march and he was like, but I'm so honey. Yeah. They were standing around and he, he didn't go he's got visit a, the, he's got a beaker and a yeah. dropper and, uh, but by the sixties and by the, by the late sixties, by the Vietnam war, he had become a public figure, at, you know, world renowned and known, you know, as much for his peace activism as for his chemistry, but of course the one bolstered the other. And, you know, he, unlike a lot of scientists, his, his work in chemistry, he, he continued it. He continued doing chemical work alongside, uh, and molecular biology mm -hmm. alongside his peace work. Well, so he was, that he was still doing research, still doing research and still doing pioneering research. And his work had never been, surpassed or, you know, it, it didn't, it was never discredited. Uh, it, it, well, it laid the foundation and, and he continued doing real work in it. Um, but kind of, um, in a star crossed moment in, so, uh, by the, by the mid sixties, he had become, um, you know, not only glo globally recognized, but also pretty controversial. This was a time when, being a peace activist sort of morphed from being a scientist who was advocating against nuclear weapons to being a, a communist sympathizer. He's a, he's a peacenik, right? He's a peacenik. There's, there's, a, there's a political element to it now? Even though he's now a man in his 60s, 
he's become a kind he's lumped in with Timothy Leary as kind of a um a person that I mean he was actually awarded the Lenin Prize at one point, um, which, you know, sort of discredits him with a certain cadre. Is taking a lot of vitamin C compatible with Marxism? We'll have to find out. <laughs> That's a question we still don't know the answer to. But throughout the 60s, he started to, all his molecular work and all of his um, biochemical work, he started to synthesize it into a uh, like an overarching theory of human health. And it was initially uh, kind of a um, an attempt to explain mental health issues as deficiencies in certain sort of molecular relationships. And I'm not going to try and explain the science to you. I'm not some Ken Jennings that's going to sit here and talk about theoretical math. I am an expert in almost nothing. This is a... And that's why I don't get into chemistry on this show. This is a layperson's show, and I'm talking about the phenomenon of Linus Pauling. Please send in your own additions, and when you do, frame them as corrections to John's moral failings, because he will enjoy that. But he started to to uh, he started to coalesce this overarching theory, and you know we love overarching theories. We're always trying to find a unified field theory here, or a you know a theory of everything. Absolutely. And his new idea he called orthomolecular medicine, which was a kind of general sense that um, that better living through chemistry. It's just better living not through uh, Agent Orange, but better living through. M- Managing your chemical, you know, your chemical makeup as a way of uh, of healing disease, improving mental acuity, et cetera. And that's kind of getting into a new agey area, even though he's framing it in a scientific way, right? That every disease, whether psychological or physical or whatever, is the result of a some kind of chemical uh, deficiency and... You just got to take the right fish oil, right? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that is, um, I mean, he's just trying to get, at this point early on, just optimal health by recognizing what is the best, you know, how do you get the exact right amount of everything you need? And it's part of an era where we're, for the first time, recognizing that we are composed of all these chemical reactions. Things are the result of of at a molecular level he's he's uh someone who devised the initial science so it's not outrageous that uh that he would be thinking about how this science could could affect us dramatically and and personally intimately right i mean if you think about isaac newton he was the father of science but he also devoted 30 years of his research to alchemy. He wanted to make gold from lead so bad. Yeah. That the, guy. And he's looking for the philosopher's stone and he's, you know, the, the father of, uh, the father of what we think of as scientific method, but also like, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have optics and calculus without him. And yet, and, and, and it's partly a result of initially kind of under being part of the, the uh, initial understanding of metallurgy and, and chemistry. Um, that's the kind of stuff that a scientific mind would have been working in, and right. you know, his genius in that field gives you mechanics, but but he wouldn't have seen it that way. 
Ken, I want to talk to you about Squarespace. Oh, boy. Is this an intervention? No, I've been... Well, maybe. Like, uh, do you have a Ken Jennings website? I think you do. I do. And you know what? I've actually been thinking about putting some new stuff up there. I feel like it would be a good place to put, like, some... uh, some trivia puzzles now that I'm not doing an email anymore. Well, I've been using Squarespace for many years to publish johnroderick.com, and I find it intuitive and uh, and incredibly cool. Like, Because uh, you're not a web programmer no, guy. I'm really not. And I, you're for a bit a, of a rookie. For a long time, I, it was, the barrier to entry of having a cool website was just that I didn't know how to use the tools and wasn't interested in learning. I feel like almost everybody needs a website for something, whether they've just got work they want to show off or, you know, content writing they want to publish, blogging, if there's something they want to sell. And what Squarespace does is Squarespace has these incredible templates created by world-class designers that are just waiting for you to populate them. They have e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online that, you know, it would be impossible to develop on your own. And it looks like you know what you're doing. You get a beautiful professional site in no time. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box, which, you know, I can tell you there are still a lot of websites out there that are terrible on your phone. It looks like they pretty much do everything, including the hosting side. They give you analytics of how your site is doing. They can help you buy domains. They can You can choose over from, uh, from over 2,000 extensions. Optimize your search engine results. Like, it's really a one-stop shop with 24-7 customer service. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And we're encouraging people here at Omnibus to make it. Make it yourself. Easily create a website by yourself. Make it stand out. Stand out with a beautiful website. What you want to do right now, if you are starting up a website, is head to squarespace.com slash omnibus. That'll give you a free trial. Then when you're ready to launch, if you use the offer code omnibus, you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So let me thank you, Squarespace, for hosting my own webpage, johnroderick.com, which I encourage everyone to go to right now. And uh, Squarespace has been a partner with me for over a decade. And thank you for supporting Omnibus and the Omnibus Project. Go to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And then with the offer code Omnibus, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. The key to the scientific method and to being a scientist seems to be uh, seems not to be that you are always right. It's the opposite. You're wrong all the time. It's um, to be a good scientist is only to have the ability to to admit that you're wrong, to discover either discover for yourself through testing that your idea was wrong, or to acknowledge the work of other scientists. And, and and say, ah, I'm wrong, and it's time to move on to either doing this work according to the new information or redirecting my energy to something else. Linus Pauling uh, had this, uh, this star-crossed encounter with a man by the name of Erwin Stone, who was not a doctor, uh, but had done some research into vitamin C— um, ascorbic acid uh, as a preservative. He was the 
the one of the people, a chemist that had discovered that oh, you could use use ascorbic acid as a food preservative. Its nutritional qualities were already known, right? Like for yeah. sailors who've been sucking on limes and pickles for a few centuries. Yeah, you know? uh, it was you know it was discovered back in 1747 by a scientist named James Lind that in trying to solve the scur- uh, the scurvy problem, which had killed two million sailors uh, over the centuries. He discovered that really the only thing that kept scurvy out of them was sucking on on lemons and oranges. So it was understood, and and uh, the vitamin C was only was only kind of what uh, vitamin C was only isolated in the 1920s. So it was one of these one of these compounds that was like, well, let's try this on everything. Let's see what it does. Vitamin is mostly a 20th century set of discoveries. 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, 19th we, century, there are a couple, but... You'd think this would be like... You might assume this would be, you know, lore going back centuries, that, uh, you know, these are the things that are in kale. It, all, it just seems so foundational. Kale's good at this, and, and uh, carrots are good at that. In fact, prior to molecular biology, there was no way to know how that stuff worked. And a lot of that was... was uh, a lot of that research and also just sort of like general casting about of theories was all happening not just in the in 1920s, but into the 1970s. And this is all part of it. Linus Pauling ends up communicating with Erwin Stone, and Erwin Stone, with his vitamin C uh, head trippery, convinces Linus Pauling that megadoses of vitamins will help um, will help cure the common cold and and uh, the the theory is this, right? That that in the mitochondrial transformation of of uh, food into energy, mm-hmm. um, not not f- yeah, I mean basically food into energy. Uh, it's a process of oxidation. Okay. And what that produces is free radicals. You don't want those free radicals. You don't want because they're they're flying around in your body and they're they're capable of. Uh, of hurting DNA, other DNA in your body and other cells. They can attach to anything yeah, and they by can, their nature, and they'll make trouble. They make trouble, and they can screw up. And vitamin C is in this category of antioxidants uh, that will suppress free radicals. And so this is, you know, this is actual that's, science that, and chemistry. But those are real chemical reactions. And the idea that free radicals loose in the body were creating weakness and ultimately cancer moral weakness moral weakness food weakness um vitamin c was seen to be a a way to to what defeat free radicals but interestingly most animals in the animal kingdom produce their own vitamin c as part of their chemical natures and humanoids that's not actually the term we use primates and humans specifically uh, have lost that ability to manufacture vitamin C. Thanks, evolution. It, it, as as part of their their native health. You have to wonder what the uh, upside was that let uh, the vitamin C less humans propagate more freely. They're just they're, they're more sexual somehow. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, w- the trade off was that we can play cornhole uh, on college campuses, or we we learned. But I don't know. S- but somehow the same chromosome that helps your liver make vitamin C just makes you unappealing to the opposite sex, or something. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I, I remember reading once about. I was I was wondering. So if people if, if seafaring peoples just die without limes and pickles, what the heck? Like, how come 
Eskimo and Inuit people aren't just dropping on the vine, dropping in the in the kayak. Right. And it turns out polar bear liver is very rich in mm. in vitamin C. So they were eating these animal livers from animals that could produce their own vitamin C and doing great uh, as long as you eat enough organ meat, I guess. Delicious polar bear liver. So all those British privateers, they didn't have to be bringing limes aboard. They didn't have to have briny barrels of stuff. No, they just needed to eat more, more, uh, just find a sea lion musk ox and eat the worst tasting part of it. So Erwin Stone's theory was that our lack of ability to metabolize vitamin C created a condition he called hypoasorbenia that he made up, um, which meant that uh, by his reckoning, we were all walking around with a kind of subclinical level of scurvy, and we needed to uh, have these massive doses of vitamin C up to, our citrus game just to get us to to a baseline. Linus Pauling took a bunch of vitamin C as an experiment a- after having this conversation, and according to him, felt lively and healthy and his and it banished the common cold in him and he became a, uh, a a real advocate of this therapy now unfortunately his experiences of it were all anecdotal right um, he, I, I feel great after i drink this is not what the fda wants to hear he immediately began uh, he claimed now whenever he felt bad that it was just allergies that he had really mastered the common cold <laughs> and over the course of uh of his, you know, his new devotion to this idea began to feel like um, ascorbic acid. Is that really how I'm going to pronounce that? Yeah, ascorbic, ascorbic acid. Do you say, do you pronounce the first C? I've never, uh, I've never had to say it out loud enough to know. Ascorbate? Um, Is it ascorbate or ascorbate? The dictionary's not helping me. I believe my dad said ascorbate. I feel like I've always heard it with the first C. Yeah. Silent. But maybe not because it's it's from ascorbutic. You know, it comes from, it's the opposite of scorbic things. It's so, ascorbic. So maybe ascorbic is right. Yeah. Ascorbic. Here's a dictionary that has it as ascorbic. There you go. I've been saying it wrong when I say ascorbic. Well, so he becomes an advocate of this, and in 1971, Pauling writes Vitamin C and the Common Cold, which becomes a best-selling book advocating for megadoses of vitamin C. Now, uh, immediately other scientists begin to do clinical trials to see if, if this is, I mean, this amazing thing might be true. You, uh, you take the free radicals out and maybe... Maybe a cure for cancer is as simple as that. But unfortunately, none of the clinical trials can confirm really in any way that megadoses of vitamin C have this effect. Does this discourage Linus Pauling at all, or is he, does he stick with the good vibes he gets from them? Well, in a, it, you know, this is, this is a, a sad thing that happens to um, a lot of great thinkers. Uh, they become kind of enamored with their reputations, I think, you know, they become arrogant. If someone as great as me think, had this thought. Two no, Nobel Prizes. Correct. And also look at all the work I've done. Yeah. Um, and so he was, he took the, uh, the scientific community's failure to 
um, endorse his thinking as a personal affront. He became indignant. He severed relationships with people, and he doubled and tripled down on vitamin C megadosing, and it became a phenomenon. Uh, Vitamin sales went through the roof. People were no longer taking 100 milligrams. They were taking five grams, 15 grams. I mean, Linus Pauling upped his dose all the way to 18,000 milligrams he was taking at one point. Sure, because if a little bit is good. If a little bit is good. Do I remember right that vitamin C is one of the water-soluble vitamins, and therefore, you you know, it's not at least it's not going to like build up in your organs, well, right? Well, so this, this is kind of one of the ways in which it passes muster, right? You, you, you do, in a lot of cases, a lot of the mega vitamins you take, you just pee it out. Right. Some of them, that's not true. Some of that's them- where, That's where Tang comes from, in fact. Yeah, well, it comes Tang from is, astronauts. Tang is just pee, astronauts peeing out vitamin C into their little <laughs> into their little suit tanks, and then flushing it out into space, and it it, it hybridizes whole planets. It falls to Earth and makes Tang. Um, he sparks off what becomes the nutritional supplement industry, and his uh, his orthomolecular uh, doctrine becomes kind of a scientific backstop for all of new age medicine. There are still, um, there are still lots of clinics and lots of treatment centers that, that use that terminology. Follow his principles. Yeah. And, and still are able to say like our, uh, our alternative medicine is endorsed by two time Nobel prize winner, Linus Pauling, because he never disavowed it and continued to fight all the way through the 90s. Now, sadly, his wife, who was a major inspiration to him, and and a big part of his his peace work, and and he he said at the time that he felt like she should have shared the Nobel Prize with him. Oh, she was like a collaborator. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, she died of stomach cancer in 1980. So you would think of of many of the things if if the whole scientific community uh, stacking up against you, it wouldn't be enough. Uh, your own wife, who presumably is megadosing on vitamin C, um, dying of stomach cancer would dissuade you from thinking it was a... That's when he says, clearly she didn't take enough. If she'd been up to 18,000 grams a day sooner, or 18,000 milligrams a day. L- let me ask you this. I have some vague memory as a Gen X kid of having the general idea that like orange juice was actually good for a cold. Yeah. Think about emergency. Have you ever taken emergency as a cold remedy? Yes. Yeah. I just had this idea that, you know, that's, that's what you need. Yeah. You know, your body craves orange juice when you're sick. And I guess that's not even true. It's just an offshoot of, of Pauling's kind of pop, pop science. 100%. All that stuff, uh, orange juice when you're sick, mm-hmm. um, uh, emergency, which now comes in 22 flavors. And, you know, I've taken emergency f- for a cold because you're kind of, when you get a common cold, you're just casting about for anything. Apparently the research shows that, uh, Vitamin C is mildly effective in the sense that it will reduce the the length of a common cold by 10%. Oh, interesting. So, you know, if you have a common if you have a cold that lasts 5 days, if you take vitamin C, it will last 10 hours less. Um but there so, is, but there is this whole industry, you're right now, of going in a grocery store and seeing a bunch of um things that purport to fight or cure the common cold, but are not actually 
scientific or FDA tested remedies in any way. Like there was this one my sister-in-law always took. She's like, oh, if you have a cold, you have to take this. And she gives me this thing and I assume it's, you know, Tylenol or sinus something. And it's just, um, it says like invented by a teacher Uh on it. And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) if if a fourth grade teacher invented. Social studies teacher. And I think the idea is, well, who gets more colds than a teacher? Like I get it. Oh, I see. But I don't necessarily want social studies teachers inventing my medicine cabinet. I would, I would. I'm fine if that's if that's a Bayer, you know. Yeah, if, if GlaxoSmithKline, if there are some, some evil big pharma company, that's fine with me. People in white coats that are doing the inventing, and then people were taking mega doses of zinc for colds, and it was like taking away their sense of smell. Do you remember this? No, but you know, zinc is yeah, it's troubling to take mega doses of it. If we. Yeah, if we stop making pennies, we're just going to be giving more and more zinc to our our sniffly kids. Exactly. When I was a kid, my dad would always put a 1943 penny under my tongue whenever (laughs) I got sick. Well, uh, even weirder, um, well, first of all, vitamin C and megadosing vitamins became a global phenomenon. It's still very popular in Europe. Um, You know, you take these all kinds of tinctures and and megadoses of of vitamin C. There's whole retail chains in this country kind of based on this principle. But, and it became, I mean, and uh, that business, uh, the vitamin supplement business has exploded in recent years and, and even more so during the pandemic, it's now a $40 billion industry. As the research progressed, in fact, it was discovered that people that took mega doses of vitamins were actually dying earlier. Mm. And uh, dying in worse ways, um, you know, aggressive C- cancers. Cement truck. Uh, yeah, that's right. Getting hit by an anvil or a dropped piano. Boxing glove on a spring. And one of the one of the conclusions of all that research was that um, free radicals also are out there free radical attacking bad things like oh. cancer. And so we, we shouldn't be demonizing free radicals. That's the thing. They're like a certain they're, they're equal opportunity <laughs> attackers. Having free radicals and having a balance of ascorbic acid that you get from fruit and other ways you find it in nature, um, the antioxidants and the uh, the hydrogen peroxides are in there fighting it out and and in fact eliminating free radicals. We all have two wolves inside us. Yeah, the, the, that just lets the lets the bad stuff flourish. Um, Did your dad believe in this stuff his whole life? Was no, he, no, 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 no. Oh. Dad just you know, I mean, he also he, heard about he also joined Est. Um, <laughs> this stuff was still popularized into the nineties. In nineteen ninety two, a Time magazine article, um, a Time magazine cover story called "The Real Power of Vitamins," uh, basically reported very credulously all of the things Linus Pauling was still saying into the nineties. Cause this was early, early enough that, and you know, and just sort of popularizing the alternative medicine, uh, universe, which expanded out. I mean, at, at the end, Linus Pauling had a list of, um, basically all disease that he believed, uh, mega dosing vitamin C and other things, uh, was the cure for, including AIDS and cancer and uh, halitosis. It is funny how when these people have a one-size-fits-all thing, even the new diseases, they're like, good news, I've already got the cure for it. Yeah. Right here. And that's the problem with all sort of one-size-fits-all a- a solutions, right? Uh, but this article that was written by 
Written by Anastasia Tonfexis. Sounds made up, but okay. Is she a space alien? Uh, she's not. She's a Time uh, magazine writer. From Venus, probably. But it, uh, it exploded in the popular, it was the uh, best-selling issue of Time in a long time, and, um, and played a role, a very measurable role, in the explosion of interest in the 90s in megavitamins and high doses of, of vitamins. I remember seeing Pauling on TV as a kid. And mm-hmm. so hearing of him first for his vitamin obsession b- before I knew, you know, and it would say Nobel, Nobel Prize winner, Linus Pauling and the, you would think it the was assumption about I got the as a kid was, yeah, he'd won Nobel Prize for <laughs> yeah. all this uh, orange juice he was drinking. And I remember just seeing, he was everywhere. He'd show up on Donahue and he would lecture the crowd. Oh, he hadn't had a cold in 20 years. And I remember my dad catching wind of it and just saying, oh, Linus Pauling. And maybe some of it was like, he's the peacenik, you know, maybe this is Republican dad versus Democratic dad. But my dad was very much like, he is the exact definition of somebody who should have stayed in his field, you know? right. Like... Although he was, you know, he operated across many fields in the uh, in science too. Plus, I mean, the vitamin stuff is totally adjacent to his molecular biology work. Right. Uh, But... But, you know, to my dad, this was the worst kind of hokum. Like, my first, yeah. whatever it, it was, something about this pseudoscience rubbed him wrong. And so we had lots of anti-Linus Pauling tirades at my house. Yeah, I think my dad drew the line at chiropractic. That was the point at which he jumped off the the uh, alternative medicine train. I mean, if you jump off the train, you do need chiropractic, though. <laughs> what, um, what later research suggested, Linus Pauling fought against the medical community for a long time. And in one profound way, he believed that intravenous vitamin C was effective. Whereas, uh, oral, you know, vitamin C taken by mouth was not because the body was only capable of processing X amount of vitamin C. Right. The stomach is the bottleneck. Right. Whereas intravenous vitamin C goes right into the blood and, and has all of these profound effects. Was my man shooting up Sunny D? He was. And he said all of these, these chemical trials, um, you know, failed to appreciate that this was, this needed to be at least at first an intravenous, uh, intervention. Lately, much later research starts to suggest that intravenous vitamin C actually does have an effect against disease, but in the opposite way from what Linus Pauling was speculating. It does not act as a, as an antioxidant in the blood in high concentrations. It actually becomes, it actually metabolizes as hydrogen peroxide, And goes as a, like a free radical facilitator and those free radicals then attack cancer and attack disease. The, it's the opposite of trying to eliminate free radicals. It's, it actually promotes free radicals as an, as an agent of destruction. Now it's also damaging good DNA, but kind of in the same way that chemotherapy works it hurts, it hurt. it injures you, but it injures the bad stuff. So we shouldn't all worse. be taking it or it, we, it's, it's we an anti-cancer it, treatment. But we shouldn't be taking it as a preventative. Like we, well, so what the research suggests is all vitamin supplements 
in, in excess of what you get in food, in the end, seem to promote disease. The the research seems to indicate that if you if you take excess of these vitamins, you're just you're just imbalancing what was a process that was working. I guess it makes sense. The evolutionary processes that created our metabolism would have optimized for the the dietary availability of all this stuff. One of the most So we're we're optimized for what we would get from eating right leaves and meat the normal amount. One of the most interesting articles I read about this was uh you know a pretty pretty cool pretty rigorous science article um that was written in um in a magazine of um a, a religious magazine that was uh, that examines science and tries to get it to square with the biblical story of creation, and so this whole article was really well written and really comprehensive. And then you realized it was the Watchtower. Well, and then the very end, there was a sentence, you know, a sentence or two where they were like, "It just goes to show that God's perfect, you know, God's perfect creation had us doing just fine without all this crazy intervention." Wow. So Linus Pauling is the Antichrist in some ways. That's appalling. And that concludes the mega vitamin craze. If only it would. If only it would conclude the craze, John. Well, you know, and I'm sure there are going to be lots of people that respond to this show by saying, no, you are completely wrong. And mega dosing zinc is the only reason that I ever survived my my bout of depression. I eat 26 cents a day in pennies. Mm. Entry 772.PR2516, certificate number 31531, in the omnibus. Uh, As we often remind you, we were uh, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick uh, on social media at the time. We were uh, not on Facebook, but the Futurelings were, Mm -hmm. often criticizing our bad science and whiskey uh-huh. distilling skills That's right. so you can look for them if you have scientific complaints um, you know in your era presumably your body chemistry may be different but your science is much more advanced so, you want to think unless our listeners are um, sentient mushrooms in which case they're going to have a whole different idea about whether they want uh, mushrooms to spread any, in your body any culture sufficiently advanced to listen to podcasts hmm. probably has vitamin supplement stores in their strip malls yeah, yeah, next right. to the karate gym and the uh, Little Caesars. Well, what did I not say? You could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, we received actual physical mail, which I'm going to open. Now, this is, this is addressed to you, John, and it's oh. the shape of a record album, maybe? Do you okay. think? Okay. I don't know. Is this- it's probably somebody that's like, hey, listen to my record. <laughs> Do you get vinyl records from... Uh, I got one the other day. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, it says do not bend, so that's how you know it's a, a really good record. Is it a really good record? Is it a number one record? Oh, wow. Is it Herb Alford and the Tijuana Brass? Is Herb Alford adjacent? Is there ex- an explanatory note of any kind? I don't see one. This is from Todd... And he wanted you to have whoa, this. Whoa, whoa, that's beautiful. It's Alaska, featuring Harry Simone, oh, the Harry Simone, or Simeone Corral, music composed by Elizabeth Firestone Willis. 
Is she, is she a beloved Alaska composer? Well, let me just describe the cover of this record, which is it's mostly pretty good. pink and purple. <laughs> it has a young, beautiful model dressed problematically in a, um, what would be an Inuit fur-lined jacket, sitting on a brown bearskin, wearing mukluks in front of a wolf, a kayak, a seal, snowshoes, and a totem pole that was clearly made for the tourist trade. It's like the Jimi Hendrix Are You Experienced cover, but with with more aquatic mammals. Oh my goodness, and it's published on Alaska Airlines record label. No. <laughs> Do you think Alaska Airlines still has a record label? I had no idea they had their own record label, uh, but yeah, they're Alaska Airlines and they're advertising themselves as the home of the Golden Nugget Jets. <laughs> I didn't even know before they had Russell Wilson they had Golden Nugget Jets. And this record appears never to have been played, so. Well, you'll have to tell me how it is. We also got a note from Steve who says he's uh, in recovery from all his other addictions. Mm-hmm. Good. He, he Good name man. checks a few, some legal, some not, but he says he needs at least one addiction, and he's decided our podcast is a lesser evil. Oh, good. Could you go put that in an Apple review, please, Steve? The lesser evil. It's not as evil as cigarettes. <laughs> uh, he names another problematic thing he does, but he tells me it's a hobby and not an addiction. We won't name that either. Okay. Oh, he's a Patreon supporter. Thank you, Steve. But um, he's added to his donation by sending us a hundred. No, let me see. He's sending us one hundred and ten trillion dollars in Zimbabwean currency. Have you been to Zimbabwe? It seems like a thing you might have done. I have not. We've talked about the hyperinflation on the show before, and people have sent us right uh, devalued Zimbabwean Reserve Bank of Zimbabwean money. One hundred trillion Zimbabwean dollars. He says we should not use the word fetishization and adjacent so much. That's a very specific complaint. I think I say fetishization and you say adjacent. But look, if you're having trouble, I think a guy named Roger wrote a book that may help you out. This guy's going to correct our English and he thinks that Roger's Thesaurus is written by a guy named Roger. (laughs) So just for the record, Steve, do you believe his name to be Roger Roger? Why would his parents do that to him? I am tired of this fetishization of the thesaurus and thesaurus adjacent. Books. I think that I, I like saying fetishization because it's very hard to say. And I always say, I always get in there and put in an extra Z. Um, but we do say fetishization a lot. Fetishization. Fetishization. You just said Fet- fetidization as in making Feti- something fetid. Fetidization. So like I th- the Omnicrom. <laughs> I think it's clear that I must say these words and not you, because... <laughs> well, this is a guy that thinks it's Roger's thesaurus, so... <laughs> Maybe he just, once he borrowed his friend's Roger's thesaurus, and he was like, wow, got his name on the cover in gold mm-hmm. and everything. Um, Steve mentioned the Patreon. That's the best way you can support the show. See, we'll, we'll let him make... We'll let him make... Um, take good-spirited jabs at sure. our vocabularies. Sure. Because he gives us $10 a month. <laughs> we have no pride. If you give us $20 a month, you can insult... We have even less pride. You could insult our looks. For $50 a month, you could insult our families and sexual performance. Hmm. And everything's on the table. Hmm. So go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject uh, if you're not a supporter and check out the perks available to, to donors. In fact, this very 
entry about the megavitamin craze was mm-hmm. suggested by a listener. Oh, uh, what is our listener's name? Kyle uh, supported the omnibus last year to Thank such you. a generous degree that he was able to select a show topic of his own. And mm-hmm. one of his options was Linus Pauling and vitamin C. Wow. And we said Kyle. sold. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.